Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. There are um, passages of Scripture that are delightful to preach because I know what they mean. Um, And this morning is not one of those. Um, John is landing his letter, and remember, like Darren has said over and over again, and and we've spoken, this, John isn't written to us. It's written for us, I think, in some ways, but it's not written to us. So John knows that his audience knows some things, and he kind of shorthands some conversation because he knows that they have a common knowledge base, right? Right? Uh, Unfortunately, 2,000 years later, we don't know what John's audience knew, what the church at Ephesus knew. We don't know that. Uh, And so we we hit up our heads against a text this morning that is challenging in some ways for us. Uh, And so I'm going to invite you to give me permission to be wrong this morning. I I think uh, in, in praying and researching and working through this, I think I know what's going on here. 
but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and I'm subject to uh, correction. Uh, I think you'll know what I mean uh, if you have read ahead. Uh, if you haven't, then you'll figure this out pretty quickly. Uh, John writes his letter at the turn of the first century. I hate to do this over and over and over again, but it's really important to set context uh, in which the church is no longer dealing with persecution per se um, uh, from the Judaizers. It's now starting to move into persecution from Rome. That's why the book of Revelation is, is, is written. It's starting to deal with the church being fragmented from the inside out by heresies that are starting to bubble up and specifically this Gnosticism of which we have spoken, the belief that the material world is evil, the spiritual world is good, that one ought to escape the bounds of this evil world by the possession of secret knowledge that will enable you to know things so that you can be pure spirited and then what you do in your body doesn't matter. In some ways, then, it enables them to believe that they don't ever have to worry about sin anymore because their pure spirit can't sin. And this is the issue that John addresses as he lands the plane on this powerful letter uh, and invites us into this um, uh, theme that we've been emphasizing this summer of love, that is the supremacy of love as the maker and marker of orthodoxy. How do you tell somebody loves God? They love their neighbor. That's the primary marker of it. Uh, we'll, we'll straighten out belief as we move along in love. That's the kind of thing. Gnosticism created this culture of exclusion, a superior spirituality, a, a spirituality of experience, which is not invalid. And we love the experiences of spirit, the moving of the spirit here. We love to pray for people. We love them to be healed. We love the, the flow of the spirit. But that is not a marker of superior spirituality. The mark of superior spirituality, if there is such a thing, is that your field of love expands. The more spiritual you are, the less enemies you have. Now, that doesn't mean they don't regard themselves as your enemies. That means you don't get to have any enemies, right? So the more we grow, the more we develop, the more the world becomes a familiar and safe place, even though it's still in the possession of our enemy, it is our Father's world, and He is at the process of redeeming and restoring it through the one thing, the most powerful force in the universe that He knows is the only way to save the world, and that is the power of love. It's the only way. Nothing else, nothing else will work if the outcome that we want is the kingdom of God on earth. So, this is where we are. Here we go. John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 5, rather, sorry. Uh, and we'll uh, pick it up halfway through that chapter in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him then, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we also know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So, if anybody sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, that person should ask. And God will forgive the brother and give him life. To those who commit sins, that is, 
that do not lead to death. Now, there is a sin that leads to death. Don't pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So, we know that everyone who has truly been born of God does not keep on sinning. The one who was born of God protects him. The evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> you see what I mean? It's like, really? We're good? Really? Okay. So, let's walk through it. And, and, and like I said, I could be wrong. Here we go. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Remember, for John, belief is not intellectual assent. It's standing in the reality of the truth that the universe has been reshaped by this understanding that God became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth, right? That that little boy from the carpenter shop, that physical man, Jesus, who still has holes in his hand in his resurrected body, that body matters, incarnation matters, resurrection matters. We stand in a reality that is shaped by that clear understanding. So when Darren says, or John says, or whoever is hosting says, we are a church that believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what we're saying. That Jesus was born a boy, grew up to be a man in a way that nobody was impressed with him. That is to say, he didn't glow, he didn't have a halo, he was like everybody else, so much so that his friends felt no problem at all telling him he was nuts. His family felt no problem at all. And remember, this is his mother whose birth, his birth was announced by an angel 30 years later with that memory still in her mind. She had no problem saying, I think the boy's lost his marbles. He's a couple tacos short of a combination plate. That's in Mark, if you want to know, I'm not making that up. <laughs> well, not the taco part, but anyway, uh, falafel, I think, I, think, I think it was falafel. But, um, but anyway, so, so you're with me? So that said, John says, if you believe this, if you stand in this reality, guess what? You have life from above. The life that comes only from the Father, the life of the kingdom, is yours. Simply by standing in that reality of God come near to us so that we can come through him near to God. That's the reality. We've talked about that. I'm not going to unpack that anymore. This is the confidence that we have toward him then. And notice, please, here. Because we stand in that reality, we are now in a relational connectedness to the God King, creator of the universe, through his son Jesus. And this, he says, is our confidence. 
not superior knowledge, not secret words that elevate us through the archons to various levels of superior spirituality, but simply this, he knows my name, I know his name. He not only says, allows me to say I'm with him, he says of me, I'm with him. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Alex, Jose, John. Do you see? I'm their God. So John says, we have this confidence that we are in him and we have it towards him so that if we ask anything, then it is alignment with his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we, excuse me, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Please notice what has happened here is that John is shorthanding some of the things he's done earlier, and he's inviting us into this relational asking that is not as concerned about outcomes as it is concerned about relationship. So if you want answered prayer, which we do, my guess is that our asking needs to be shaped by our abiding. Our asking of the Father needs to be shaped by what the Father is doing. He hears us. We learn his heart. We learn how to ask in Jesus' name. By that, I do not mean a posted stamp that we stick on the end of our prayers guaranteeing delivery and outcome. That's not what in Jesus' name, amen, means. In Jesus' name means praying the way Jesus would pray if Jesus were praying. I want to know him well enough to know that in given situations and circumstances, I know what Jesus would be asking the Father for, and I want to amen Jesus' prayer, and if he trusts me enough, I want to pray that prayer myself. That's what praying in Jesus' name means. And so as our asking is shaped by our abiding, as our asking is shaped by our relationship, then we learn that we can receive what we ask for. Please notice then, this means only a very small part of prayer will be about asking. Most of prayer will be about knowing, will be about relationship, will be about listening. The older you get, the more mature you become in spirit, the less talking to the Father you do and the more listening to the Father you do. So that you learn his heart, you learn his way, you learn his vocabulary, if you will. So that we can speak a language of relationship. Now what this does, and the reason I'm, I'm camping on this for just a second, is because John really believes in the power of prayer to change outcomes. It's not that John is not believing in prayer. He's inviting us into a certain kind of relationship with the Father, and he's going to argue relationship with our brothers and sisters, so much so that our prayers actually affect eternal outcomes for other people, as well as for us. That's what he's after. So then he goes on to this mysterious second paragraph here. If anyone then sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask and God will give him, that brother, life. 
Now this is about, he says, those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. Don't pray about that. Everybody clear? <laughs> I, I got nothing. No. John is saying there are two types. Sin, he's going to go on, as he said in the last line, all sin, all wrongdoing is sin. Self-destructive. It's damaging to your soul. The things, the reason something is called sin, that, that label isn't what makes it wrong. The fact is it's wrong. It's damaging. It's destructive. And so God shorthands all of this by calling it sin and says, don't do that. It's not sin that makes things wrong. It's wrong that makes things sin. This is really important because we think that God exists to label things sin that are really good for us and that are really not a big deal. No, 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 no. If something has the label from God that it is sin, that is damaging, that is destructive to you, it has that label because it's harmful, it's damaging, it's wrongdoing. It will take you down. Do you catch it? All right. By the way, notice that that means sin is different for different people. I can't become an expert in other people's sins because I don't always know what is sin for them. Everybody okay? All right. So what is the sin that leads to death versus the sins that don't lead to death? Please notice plural sins that don't lead to death versus sin that leads to death. For John, the easiest way to come at this is to ask, well, what's life? He's already told us numerous times, what's life? To believe in, to stand in the reality of the Son of God. That person who does that, who stands in that reality, faith, has life. So John says there is a sin that leads to not life, but death. What do you think that might be? not standing in that reality. This does not mean, so what John is saying is that there are those who do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, who do not believe, you cannot pray salvation for them. They have to come to that awareness themselves. You cannot be saved, if I can use our traditional language, for somebody else. You can't pray for the dead. You can't pray for your kids. You can't pray for your parents. You can't pray for that uh, neighbor across the street. You can't pray for the atheist in your classroom. You can't pray for those people with the goal of them, with, with, for them to receive Christ. Now, what you can do is intercede for them that God would create circumstances in which they would come to that awareness themselves. He's not opposed to that at all. Do you see what I mean? But once a person has themselves come to an awareness of life, once they have received eternal life, that does not mean they automatically stop sinning. At least nobody in this room that I know of. Right? We are no longer sinners who sin. We are now saints who sin. Huge difference. John says if you're dealing with a what? A brother, a sister. Somebody with, in whom you have family, to whom you are connected by the blood of Jesus. Somebody who's part of the community of faith. And you see that brother sinning. What do you do? It's as radical as this, friends. You pray on their behalf God's forgiveness for them. And God, who wants that 
two will forgive them, will give them life. How's that feel? Kind of weird, doesn't it? Because what do we usually do when we see a brother sinning? We Facebook it. We gossip. We crush them with our superior judgmentalism. We create a sense of our superiority because I don't do that. Right? And we've had plenty of opportunity to do that over the last few weeks, months, years, haven't we? Because there's all kinds of worse sinners than me. Right? So if I can posture myself in relation to those brothers and sisters who have sinned as one who's superior, if I can tut-tut them, or if I can confront them in love, just concerned, just concerned. Can we do coffee? John says your primary orientation to your brothers and sisters who have sinned, your husband, your wife, your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your roommate, your primary orientation to your brother or sister who has sinned is not one of condemnation or judgment, but one of loving intercession. You say to God the Father, oh God, I know that what they're doing is wrong. Please charge that to my account. Who does that sound like? You know who it sounds like. You know who it sounds like. He says, so when you, there, is, there are sins that don't lead to death, i.e. that don't lead to separation from God. Isn't that crazy? There are sins that, 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 that saints commit because John is convinced the only sin that will, will boot, vote you off the island, the only one, is not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe that, you're in. That's crazy. That means people can do things that I don't approve of and maybe even is damaging to them, right? But in that discreet moment, I don't get to decide who's on the island and who's off. So I want to have an orientation of my brothers and sisters who are engaged in self-destructive behavior, not first of judgment, but not first of condemnation, not even first of correction, but first of love and intercession. I want to pray God's heart for them. Because what does God want to do with those people who are caught up in sins that, while not leading to death, will cause us to stumble, will cause us to, to wound others, will cause us to hurt? What is, he, what is his orientation to them? Not condemnation. That's been settled. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. See how this flows? So he invites us to be intercessors. He invites us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are doing things that are damaging to them, but that don't lead to death because that's not their choice. If they stand in the reality of Jesus as the Son of God. But he, he does want us to be clear, friends. Oh, by the way, why does he do this? There's a, there's a hidden strategy here, isn't there? What's the only thing that will lead you to repentance 
if you become aware in community that what you're doing is destructive to yourself and others? What's the only thing that will lead you to life change? It's love. It's the kindness of God, Paul says, that's enabled our repentance, right? Not the judgment of God. Ultimately, not the fear of hell. That might get you started, but it's not enough to get you home. Right? Because what kind of a home would it be if you're terrified that dad's going to whoop you? So here's, here's John. You really, you, you care about the self-destructive behaviors of your brother and sister. Cool. Orient yourself towards them in love and kindness. Because that's the only thing that will enable the life change that I am convicting them towards. If they know that you love them, then you can speak truth. Do you see how this flows together? Does that make sense? Like I said, I could be wrong. So, he goes on. Um, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. John is not casting a blind eye to self-destructive behaviors, not casting a blind eye to sin. He is inviting us, however, to recognize that if you are born of God, if you stand in the reality of eternal life come through Jesus Christ, then you're in Him. Even the sin that you commit in Him will not isolate you from Him. Love, John Romans chapter 8, is greater than that. You see? So, so he says, God is born of God. The, the Son, the one who is born of God, namely Jesus, protects that one who is in Him. And the evil one doesn't touch him. So what are we to do with the fact that we still sin, we still engage in self-destructive behavior, we still engage in behaviors that are damaging to others? What do we do? Well, we enjoy our position and then we take advantage of it to repent. We don't take advantage of it to keep on self-destructing. We take advantage of it to change our behavior. Do you see what he's saying? Because we don't keep on sinning. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to be clear. If this is a persistent pattern that you continue to engage in, what ultimately you are saying is, I'm not standing in the reality of sins forgiven. I'm not standing in the reality of the life of the above because my behavior doesn't echo the life from above. We've got some cleanup operations to do. We've got changes to, to, to make, right? We've got work to do on, on our behavior. I need to clean up my language. I need to clean up my thought life. I need to clean up my attitudes. I can't do that. The grace of God can do that, but I'm going to keep leaning in and leaning forward. And as the Holy Spirit convicts me of things, not condemns me, convicts me of things, I'm going to take the Holy Spirit seriously because I want to take, I want him to take me seriously so that when I pray, I've been heard. Do you see how it flows together as he comes to the end? So we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is his, this is his, this is, you stand in this or you're in the whole world and subject to a power that will take you down. Whether you think you can negotiate it or not, I haven't, I haven't yet to meet, including myself, 
someone who doesn't begin destructive behavior believing that the odds are for them, not against them. I, I spend a lot of time with 18 to 22 year olds. Virtually every conversation I have with somebody who's engaged in self-destructive behavior finally and ultimately believes that it won't happen to them. No, I can sleep around. No, I can gamble. No, I can drink irresponsibly. It'll happen to everybody else. The damage will occur to everybody else, but it won't happen to me. Only to discover at 25 or 28 or 30, it happened to me. Do do you see? Why? Because when you make those decisions persistently, you are voting for the evil one to have priority and precedence in your own life. Not a good choice. Do you see? He invites us out of the power of the evil one into the safe shelter so that we can actually deal with the damage. You can't repair the boat of your life on the open seas in gale force winds. Come into the harbor of the grace of God and let him restore and repair the hole in the bottom of your boat. Do you see? He invites us to that. It's scary. It's hard. It's, it's, amen? It's hard. But it's the only way. So he goes on and he says this. We know then that the Son of God has come and helps us to understand stuff. Please notice his, his little joke here. It's not about superior knowledge. It's not about developing gnosis so that you can have a superior spirituality. It's about relationship with the Son of God and in Him you will have all of the understanding you need. So that we know Him who is true. You hear the echo. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are, who are in Him, we are in Him who is true. Namely, His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God. And He's eternal life. Right. And I love this little throwaway line at the way on the, as the letter's going out the door. Just tell them. Just tell them. One more time. Keep yourselves from idols. John is not here concerned with the little idols of materialism, as problematic as those are. He's not concerned here with the little idols of, you know, the, 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 the Buddha rubbing belly. Not, not, not a big deal. I mean, what he's concerned about is a false god that we generate in our own image to justify our own behavior, right? Don't, no false idols, no false gods. No false gods. Our decisions have to flow towards righteousness, empowered by love, acceptance, forgiveness. The whole world lies in the power of death. We have eternal life. We still have to have the cancer that will take us out removed. That's the grace of God. 
Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Speak.